Welcome to the NPR Network and the Boas, Boas, Boas podcast with your hosts Rob Stone, Keith McPeak, and myself, Warren Booth. On today's show, we will be talking about the Corallus caninus and the Corallus caninus petisi complex. We hope you enjoy it. How you guys doing? Everything's good. Um, you know, since our last uh, recording, you know, it's just semester has started, so it's a matter of kind of teaching. I've I've overloaded my teaching here in my final semester at the University of Tulsa, so my life just seems to be, you know, in the classroom or in my office preparing for the next lecture. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know why in my last semester I decided to offer an entirely new course. You know, instead of just kind of like freewheeling it on courses that were already developed. But, you know, it is what it is. But I'm counting down the days to a trip to Costa Rica. Nice. And uh, over Thanksgiving and then um, and then after that, you know, it's a matter of wrapping up everything where I am and, and moving to Virginia. The Costa Rica trip, is that uh, business or pleasure? It's business. It's a course that I've taught. It's a tropical biology course that I've taught for uh, maybe um, eight or nine years. And uh, we get to go to um, uh, La Selva Biological Station, which is northeast of San Jose. You kind of go over the mountain range. Um, you're at the northernmost part of one of the major uh, um, uh, forest parks there, which is just really cool. So you get to see some really neat animals. Cool. Um, you know, we're in the range where you'll, you'll find Corallus annulatus, which is kind of cool. But, you know, every other snake you bump into is going to be a feral lance, yeah. which is kind of cool in itself. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so sure. it's, it, it's, it's funny. It's it's. It's ranked by the university as its most dangerous course, but also one that the students find most enjoyable. So yeah. uh, we haven't had any any horror stories yet, but it's always, you know, I, I was meant to go on it the last couple of years, but um, COVID obviously closed all those things down. Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of really chomping at the bit to get back into the rainforest because I, I love that place. Nice. Yeah. Good. Yeah. You had some bubble litters too, I think, since last uh, last show we did, didn't you? Yeah, so I'm trying to work it out. So I think when we did the last one, I might have had a, a litter of leopards. Um, and then I was waiting on one more leopard, uh, one more litter of Boa Sigma. Uh, and those were the, um, in this case, it was a pure Sonoran Boa Sigma anarthristic leopard bred to a pure Sonoran um, Boa Sigma hypo het anarthristic. Nice. So, um, yeah, so it was great. You know, the, the thing is, I think I'd mentioned before, I'd been traveling so much that I missed the ovulation date. And the post-ovulation shed date, so um, everything was just kind of like roughly. Well, she's getting bigger, so she's she looks like she's gravid, she's basking, she's doing everything that she should do. I've just got no idea when she's going to give birth, so it was just a matter of look, watching out for that waxy plug. Yeah. And once that appeared, um, then I knew things were going to happen pretty soon. So I um I have in my basement, I've got where my snakes are. I've got um, a Google Nest security system, security cameras. Uh-huh. Um, and I got one of those and I re- relocated it to the front of the cage of that female. And this is terrible because before that I put that there, I was just going down to that room every hour to just checking on yeah. it. And then whenever I had that camera in front of it, it meant like every five minutes I'm looking at this camera <laughs> to see what she's doing. Yeah. But it's interesting because then, you know, she wasn't doing much. But then I started seeing like jerky motions and all that kind of stuff. And I knew it was getting close and yeah. roaming around with a tail raised up. And, and then I, I went out for a run. And I came back like an hour later and she delivered um, babies. So altogether it was 13 babies and five slugs. So I was really happy with that. Seven of them were anarthristics. Wow. Um, and then the uh, the other five were um, 
were double hat anathristic leopards. So they're anathristic hat leopards, and the rest are, are um, double hat anathristic leopards. In another shed or two, I'll be able to see that which ones are the hypos, because the yeah. hypo and Sonoran kind of is something that's pretty subtle at the beginning, but it becomes more obvious as they shed. Yeah. Um, but the good thing is they, they all fed um, just a couple of days after their shed. So um, I'm really pleased with that. They all look fantastic. You know, it's my first time producing anarthristic Sonorans again in 17 years, wow. maybe somewhere somewhere around there, even though that trade originated in my collection back in Ireland in 2002. Um, I just hadn't done much with them here. I I'd, I'd bred hats and stuff like that here, but I hadn't actually produced anarthristics. Um, so it was really great to um, to see those, you know. it's uh, and, I, and that's my last litter for the year, and, and it's kind of a weird feeling, and it's the last litter for probably next year as well because i won't i'm not planning to breed anything because of the move right so it's kind of that weird feeling the last litter produced here and i've in, in the 11 years i've lived or 10 years i've lived in oklahoma i've produced a lot of baby boas so it's kind of weird that that's all come to an end yeah uh, coming to an end you know? right right but it definitely it definitely ended on a really high note which i'm pleased with yeah that's awesome congrats what about what about you i know that you had oh, an unfortunate I've, one but i've had a bad year I've had a bad <laughs> year with boas um so yeah, let's see last, since last time we talked i've had uh slugs from an annulated i've had oh. stillborn in slugs from uh russian burger eye i've had slugs with a eastern sanzinia um oh, man. i had emerald drop and i got nine babies um, only one was really viable though. The other ones just didn't make it. And there was three slugs in that. Um, but I did get a hog aisle boa litter, which I haven't done hogs in probably like you're saying, 17, 20 years. So yeah. that was pretty <laughs> exciting to get those babies. Yeah. Um, just yeah. been one of those years for me though. You know, you, you get those off seasons sometimes. The, the egg layers did good for me this year, but my boas, I just didn't do very well with. Wow. Yeah, that's weird. You know, mine might have always been pretty consistent. You know, I, I think I can count the number of slug litters or stillborn litters um, really on one hand in the last 25 years or 26 years of breeding boas, you know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I, I've talked to a bunch of people that have said the same thing this year where they just had just catastrophic failures across yeah. most of their breedings. It's really? just weird, you know. Well, misery yeah, loves company, right. so that makes me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But at least your uh, at least your egg layers did a lot better for yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So there's always there's, next year. I was going to say that there's always next year. You've got enough um, animals to be able to uh, cycle around and do other stuff. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, very and cool. I know Rob just mentioned. Rob, you said something about you, you have a Puerto Rican female that's going to drop maybe in a few days. Yeah, she looks really good. She's, you know, a very good biannual or biennial uh, breeder. Every other year has a clear cycle and the male is the same. And one of those situations where you know that not putting them together would probably lead to problems. Um, so more than anything, that's kind of why I do it is she get, develops big follicles. The male's super, um, super interested. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those you're looking at it saying, if I don't do this, I'm likely to get... Um, slugs or complications. Uh, cool. But yeah, that'll be the third litter from her. Um, so we'll see see how that goes. Awesome. One, one, one other cool thing that did happen, I got my copy of the more complete carpet python. 
Look at how thick that baby is, huh? That is just insane. It's it's made me realize I need to start weightlifting. So uh, six hundred and twenty-two pages or something like that. There. Wow. Just just a beast, but it's a. I've been slowly going through it, and it's it's really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah so I don't know. I don't know how he's going to top that. You know, it's uh, it's pretty impressive. Good deal. So, yeah, very cool. Very cool. All right, so you want to get into this more? Let's uh, let's dig into these emeralds. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this this is a species that captivated me uh, for many years. You know, I was first attracted to Corallus through Hortolanus or Hortolana. I think they're not they're not called. Um, but maybe a year or two into keeping Amazon freebos, I, I started really getting interested in emeralds, and I got my first pair in this whole ordeal of a trip whenever I lived in Northern Ireland. I had to collect them from Scotland and it meant getting on a ferry and crossing the ocean and the, the Irish Sea and getting them and bringing them back. And, uh, but, and they sadly were the, the typical, what you might expect from a wild caught pair of emeralds, you know, after six months they were regurging and that was it. Yeah. Um, but over time, you know, I, I, that, that didn't put me off emeralds. It just kind of like made me interest, more interested in them. And I was able to pick up captive bred animals over time and, and just love those animals. And just sadly before I moved, the U.S. I sold off my entire Corallus collection just to make the move easier, mm-hmm. and that included a number of captive-bred emeralds, which were just getting up to adult size and, and ready for breeding. But you know, it's a species that I made sure I was getting back whenever I was here, and, and now I've got a, a pretty decent kind of group, probably about fifteen or sixteen emeralds um, that we're playing with here, and uh, a mixture all northern, all Guyana, the kind of the uh, Guiana Shield boas or, or Northern Shield boas. Um, so none of the none of the basins, none of the Batisi, mm-hmm. but uh, I've got the anaconda phase and I've got the the regular kind of white pattern phase. And I'm, o- over time, I'm going to add the, the true patternless if I can find it. But for me, the, I, I much prefer these over over the basins. I know that some people might find that hard to believe, but I just I just find them really fascinating animals. I don't find them hard to keep once you got good animals, and uh, I think they're just absolutely spectacular. Yeah, you know. Yeah, kind of in but the same boat as you. Uh, you know, I, I just like the northerns. I think there's just, um, I don't know what it is about them. There's just something different about them that I like a, a lot better than the, the, the basins. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it seems, you know, you got a lot of traits to breed for. and So that's kind of my yeah. thing, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we can definitely get into that later on in the discussion about these traits because really now when you're able to sit down with a whole group of animals and look at them, even those that are of the same phase, right? So if you just want to call them the standard kind of wild type, you know, white patterned, you know, kind of on the dorsal surface. Um, even within those, you, you, you see a lot of variation, whether it's in the dorsal kind of triangle number or their size or um, even on the size, the blues or the yellows that come through, you know? Yeah. So I think, there's, I, I think there's a ton of work to be done in the captive propagation of this species, it's really going to develop really some incredible lineages. And yeah. as I say, I don't think I don't think they're hard to keep, and I don't think they're hard to breed, um, at least in my experience. So I think there's once more people have captive bred animals in their hands, it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a really fun species to watch as they kind of grow in the hobby um, in a in a more stable state, you know, away from these wild cots that are very rarely doing well into these into these captive animals that are that are really thriving. Yeah, you know, so the, yeah, they're a you know, Corallus caninus is the uh, 
you know, as we call it now, it was originally classified by Linnaeus. So this is one of those species that we can date right back to to, uh, to Linnaeus naming species, and he did so in like 1758. He called it Boa Canina, and then it went through a, a series of different names over time until it finally settled on Corallus Caninus um, uh, in like 1893. And then, of course, since then, we've seen some reclassification occurring as well, and we can kind of mention that as well. But, you know, if we think about Corallus Caninus um, up until, you know, like 2009 or so, I think it was reclassified then, uh, or we or it was split it was considered a Corallus species with just an enormous range. Just like Corallus hortolana has got a massive range. Caninus, as it was known then, also had a massive range. You know, from, um, you know, the the primary ones that we think of with the northern emeralds are Guiana, Suriname, and French Guiana. You'll also find them a little bit in eastern Venezuela. You'll find them in northern Brazil. Um, But then if you add... um, Batisi to it, which was then thought to be Caninus. You know, you've got Bolivia, Ecuador, Peru, Colombia. Um, you've got Brazil as well. You know, just an enormous range for, for this green snake that sits on trees. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's been some really good work done uh, in the last 10 or 15 years, which has started to separate those and reclassify them. Right. So we can think about, you know, across that range for any species with such a large range, it would be unnatural for there not to be either subspecies or even that being a species complex and the split the splitting it up you know we talked about boa constrictor last uh, last episode and we saw that even you know it's got a really large range as well um, and it's split into a whole variety of different species and subspecies well we saw the same thing happening with with corallus caninus and it was split into corallus uh, batisi as a full species um, most people know them as the amazon basin emeralds uh, and, you know, the ones that are classified or characterized by that, you know, really bright orange, uh, you know, ventral surface and chin, um, the, the the white stripe connecting the, the vent or the dorsal triangles on its back. Um, and, and of course, yeah, just the enormous price that's also associated with them. They're just crazily expensive. They occur in, you know, in that range, they occur in the kind of most of Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Peru. But what's interesting now as well is that there might be a third species, or I'll say subspecies, because there's a different lineage that they believe in north in the kind of uppermost Peru, um, which is it looks like a, a basin emerald, but without the striping mainly and more lateral blotches. So if you go onto something like iNaturalist and look up Corallus and bring up their map. And look at those in in the upper kind of regions of Peru. They they look different. They're really wow. cool. But there hasn't been any genetic work really to, to to identify those as a species yet. But they are dramatically different genetically from from other Corallus caninus. So if we think, you know, if they did it, they did a study, or there was a study published by Nicholas Vidal in two thousand and nine that looked at um, Corallus caninus from as they were then from Venezuela, Guyana two regions in Brazil and Peru, and then also boa constrictor as an outgroup. The Corallus caninus um, from Venezuela and, and Guyana and so on were about 20% divergent from the boa constrictor. So this genetic sequence was divergent by about 20%. So if we think about a, even just a very simple 100 base pairs of sequence, 20 of those differed between boa constrictor and, and Corallus caninus. If we look at those 
Corrales, Caninus within like Venezuela and Guyana, there's only like 2%. Add northern Brazil to it, adds about 3%. So that's all within the species kind of range generally. If you go further into Brazil, that kind of doubles to about 6%. So we can see this is a separate species. Those ones from upper Peru were 16.4% divergent. Wow. Which is just absurd. Like that's so dramatically different. There's just been nothing since then to really to look into that to actually potentially then classify them as a separate species and i would imagine with that level of divergence they're going to be classified as a separate species mm. um you know just a, a remarkable kind of remarkable level of divergence and what's what's neat about this is that um you know it just it shows us that across that large range we're looking at a corallus complex you know what we once considered corallus caninus is actually a very likely to be a multi-species complex which is just really fascinating great because that increases biodiversity of the world bad because it it decreases the population size of each species right so you've had one big species group and now you've got lots of smaller kind of species essentially that are you no know, smaller population sizes so it makes them at risk of extinction but just a, a fa fantastic species um so you know, the ones that we're going yeah let me just interrupt you for a second because why were you talking about this we, we talked when we talked about the boa constrictor complex we talked about the different habitats that over that range that those snakes encompass. Now, do you know if there's a different habitat that over the ranges that these snakes take advantage of the, the caninus? You know, that's a good question. That's something I've never really looked into. You know, whenever, whenever I've been into rainforest, rainforests are very much rainforest. You know, there's every part of the, every part of your field of view is taken up with something. There's trees growing on trees that are growing on trees. Like there's so many limbs, so much diversity in plant life and, and, and trees and so on. I think that, um, I think it's probably somewhat stable in terms of a generalized rainforest structure. So I don't think there, I don't, I don't think it's like boa where you're finding some that are, you know, more, um, kind of, uh, not necessarily grassland or whatever, or desert, but you know, with that's your significant variation of rainforest versus non-rainforest i don't think i don't think we're seeing that with corallus you know these are a rainforest specialist i think division into these species is, is split up by geographic barriers by major rivers uh, these animals can't move across easily and that creates genetic division and also separation of, of just rainforest land you know where you, you you don't have any contiguous rainforest connecting and that's going to lead to, to divergence over time as well because they can't get from one plot to the next to breed. And then just the massive geographic area, which this covers, you know, it's not a small area. So therefore, that also supports differentiation just on a geographic distance basis, you know, from those being closer together, going to be more genetically similar than those farther apart. Hence, those from Guyana and Venezuela and like Suriname are very close together geographically in a sense. And therefore, they're genetically very similar. But as you move further away from that, you increase genetic distance. And therefore, increase the likelihood of, of differentiation into separate species. Mm. I think yeah. uh, I, I think in my head, I'm thinking more of like very subtle differences, like maybe there's differences in rainfalls or or the type of trees, possibly that they're using, or you know what I mean. Um, like yeah, it's, yeah. it's obvious that they're so specialized to a rainforest setup, but I wonder if there's differences um, in those rainforests, even that perhaps make of certain animals even more hardy um right. captivity possibly even you know yeah yeah I, I need to look into that you know because rain like rainfall is, is is likely to to show variation across that you've got some elevational variation 
Um, it would be interesting to look at, you know, temperature-wise, I think it's relatively stable across most of that range that the species occurs in. Right. But maybe maybe rainfall is, is kind of a driver, and um, maybe understory is something that should be considered because babies hang out in the understory as well. So right. maybe where these animals are occurring, you know, that's something I haven't really looked into. Um, and I don't, I'm not really aware of, of any real scientific papers that look into that. You know, there's some papers that, that talk about the use of canopy, um, by Corallus caninus, you know, just movement, but that's just observational stuff. You know, there's, I'm not aware of anything that shows like any kind of niche partitioning of the juveniles using a different habitat than the, than the subadults and the adults and so on, and how that might vary across the range. Right. I don't really know. What we just know is quite simply the, off, the, the juveniles occur in the lower understory because they're close to the ground and close to the things that are going to move around that they're going to eat, and the adults are more higher up in the canopy. You know, so, um, but as a, as a species, they're really interesting because you know, Corallus caninus is, is probably the the most basal uh, species of that group, right? Of, of the whole Corallus complex, it's the most ancient, realistically. That and Cropani evolved somewhere around forty five to fifty million years ago. That lineage that formed those that's when it diverged, kind of the middle Eocene, and then from there, you know. From Cropani, you then get Annulatus, and then you get Ruschenbergeri, and then you get the Hortolanus complex. Mm. And we'll talk about the Hortolanus complex in another another episode because that's a really interesting one. Because we you know we talk about Grenadensis and Kukai uh, and 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 Hortolanus, but H- Grenadensis and Kukai are kind of nested within this whole Hortolanus group, so they might not even be a species. They not, they might not even be valid species. Right. Um, or Hortolanus might be multiple species, you know, so that can be another conversation for another day. They, that whole group evolved only about 11 million years ago. So, you know, the Caninus are are an old lineage, you know, of the 35 to 50 million years ago in terms mm-hmm. of evolution, which is really cool. Um, and then their closest ancestor is kind of Epicrates and Eunectes. And then their closest ancestor would be the kind of the boa constrictor group, you know, so it's... Um, it's an interesting evolution of the whole kind of lineage as you as you go through it, you know. Um, you know, the ones that we're going to talk about and focus on tonight are going to be the, the, the kind of northern shield boas, the Guiana, those from Guiana, um, Suriname, French Guiana, and a little bit of Venezuela, a little bit of, of Brazil. Of course, the ones that we talk about and the ones that we have access to in captivity are, are those that are going to be from Guyana and Suriname primarily, and, and as a result, shipped out of... Um, Whereas at Paramaribo, right, and Suriname and Georgetown and Guyana, they're the two kind of major export sites for those. And they'll be collected over a relatively wide range um, within those uh, within those countries. But um, they're the ones that we're going to focus on tonight, I think. Yeah. Now, I, I heard a lot of the collection, and, and maybe you know a little more insight on this. This is just anecdotal from what I've talked to people about. But it seems like a lot of them are collected from waterways, um, that they'll go out with uh, flashlights at night and, and go down these waterways and look for eye shine on these branches right over the water, just kind of creep up on um, with a boat and, and snag them off these branches. Have, have you heard that also? It makes sense, right? So I, I've definitely heard it with um, with uh, Ruschenbergeri, uh, with Trinidad Trebos, for example. They're often found. You know, the, the, the people that I talk to find them when they're out on boats going along the edges of waterways. Um, I know the same for uh, for Hortolanus. Some friends have done the same thing with Hortolanus. Um, for for Caninus, it, it kind of makes sense, right? Whenever you're a species that's trying to avoid 
getting eaten by other things. You know, they like to sit on really thin limbs. And if those limbs are at the end of branches that are over some water body, there's got to be very few larger animals that can actually come over that, that way to then capture those. So it kind of makes sense from a, from a, from a, um, predator avoidance kind of, um, kind of technique. Right. And, and, but the other thing is that it just might be, uh, it makes it easier to see, right? So what you see with Corallus, which is kind of cool, is that their eyes shine red whenever you have a flashlight. Uh-huh. You know, so like I'll I'll go into my into my basement at night and I'll just use a flashlight to see what animals are doing. But if I pan around and I look at the Russian burgerai, for example, they all have red eyes, you know, reflecting back at you. And I believe Caninus have the same thing. I think most Corallus have that reflective eye shine. So when you're in a dense rainforest, and I can vouch for this. Um, it's hard to see many things, right? Especially when you're looking into the trees because you're getting a lot of eye shine from spiders as well and stuff like that. Um, if you're over, uh, if you're in a boat going along, you know, these uh, rivers with the, with the limbs hanging over you, um, their density of those branches is reduced and therefore it might just be easier to see them. Yeah. So whether they're actually congregating along those areas, I don't know. It might just, it might just be a, uh, it's much easier to see them and therefore capture them. Yeah. Yeah. And you can cover... You know, you can cover a decent area in any period of time whenever you're on a boat. You know, whenever you're whenever you're looking for animals, there's two ways you can really do it in the rainforest. You can you can walk slowly and try and look around you to see everything, or you can walk pretty fast and cover more ground and hope to see something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the covering more ground when you're on a boat is probably a more uh, a more easy way of getting larger numbers of animals. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm, I'd love to see it. You know, I've never, <clears throat> I've never been in an area where caninus occurs, but they are a species that I would love to, uh, I'd love to see in the wild. You know, I've seen um, annulatus in the wild, and they're really cool, but I'd love to see caninus in the wild just to to see what they look like in terms of quality and stuff like that. Because what we see of wild caught emeralds are after they've been put through weeks of dehydration and stress and so right. on. You know, so um, I'd like to see the uh, the alternative of that. And also the way they're living. So, yeah, right. You know, like people talk about them, you know, these giant teeth that they've got, and that's um, specialized for eating birds. And from the studies that I've read, that's not the case. You know, they're they're primarily mammal eaters yeah. um, eating these arboreal rodents. You know, and the teeth make sense because there's two ways to think about it. One is that it's for penetrating kind of that thick layer of fur. Um, but it's also if you're an animal that's pretty high up in the canopy and you snatch a rat then the last thing you want to do is that rat to fall out of your teeth, you know, whenever you're coiling it. So I think it's just another way of it, um, of it preventing the, the prey from, from being lost. Cause if you lose that, it's not as if the snake can just go around and find it again, you know, it's gone, it's 30 feet below and disappeared. So those teeth make sense. You know, yeah, thankfully I've I, never been bitten, never been bitten by them, but, uh, <laughs> I have, but, uh, I don't want to think. but, uh, but I also have noticed in captivity that I do believe that if you feed, live which i've done occasionally when you do feed live that when they grab that prey it's almost like a bunch of daggers going into that prey and it actually subdues them almost like a bird of prey's talons when they hit a bird or a squirrel or something and and i and i think i think it almost like immobilizes that animal when they're grabbed with those teeth you know what i mean okay yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I had a lot of struggle. 
Yeah, I've never had to feed live. Um, so it's kind of like a, yeah, I, I kind of dread the thought of, <laughs> of a large emerald grabbing a live rodent, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, yeah, I've always been lucky enough that my, that my adults are all very readily accepting, even wild caught established ones that I've got uh, will take, um, defrost f- food, you know, from, mm-hmm. for their first meal. Yeah. You know, um, we can talk about feeding in a bit, but they are, you know, they're remarkable. Those teeth are just, you know, I, I, I was, I was helping a, or assisting a shed for an animal a couple of years back. Um, and just working around the eyes and the head, you know, whenever you're holding it and you know, the, the mouth opens up and you see the size of those teeth when the skin retracts from the, from the jaws a little bit. Wow. They're, it really is, um, a force to be, uh, you know, you don't want to screw around with that. So you, you have been bitten by one. Yeah. I've been bitten by him. Um, I know Ed Marino said too, that he, he had taken a bite from one of the basins, uh, to the face and, uh, in his eyelid and he he was so, you know, close to like actually getting his eye punctured by that. He was lucky that it just missed his eyeball, uh, when he got bit. Yeah. I've had a, I've, I was bitten by a six foot, six and a half foot Corrales Hortelana and maybe 20 years ago. And it, it was, um, it was a slow bite. So I felt every tooth kind of puncture into my skin. Slowly. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the teeth on those were nothing compared to the emerald of the same size. Yeah. So, and, yeah. I, I always seem to I get did. bit in the knuckle and like they'll lose a tooth in my knuckle. <laughs> <laughs> it always seems to be the way. Yeah. <laughs> That happened. That happened to me once with a hog island boa. And about four months later, I was sitting eating dinner, yeah. and I, 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 my, I bent my finger because there was pain in it, and this little tooth just popped out of it. Yeah, you know, I've had that many thing. times. It's, it's a very relieving feeling when it finally happens. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, what do you, do you want to talk about? Well, let's let's just be general to start off with, right? If we're going to talk about the, the kind of the northern shield boas. Um, you know, size-wise, adults about five feet. They're not huge. Five and a half feet um, is generally a big one, right? Um, you know, Rischenbergerai certainly get bigger. Even Hortlana can get longer, but they're heavy body. That's the big difference, right? They're not a they're not a slender. Um, as an adult, they're not necessarily a slender boa. They're um they're, they're they've got some size to them, and interestingly, there's no real visible sexual dimorphism. You know, in many species. I find some level of sexual dimorphism with males either being larger or smaller, you know, compared to the females, but definitely uh, as adults, there's some variation, you know, for example, with my boa sigma, I always find the males much smaller than the females, right? I think we mentioned that in the last show, Yeah. Uh, but there's no real, there's no real sexual dimorphism that we see in Corallus caninus. So the males and the females are pretty much the same size, um, five foot, five and a half foot as a, as a relatively large adult. Um, as juveniles, that's, you know, one of the cool things, obviously, about Corallus caninus is that color change. I think that's something that probably grabs many people whenever they first, you know, find that book that's got emerald tree boas in it. And they show a picture of an adult and then a picture of a baby. Right. And they're just so dramatically different, you know, like the we always think about the, the babies being red. Sometimes you see green ones. That's kind of cool whenever you see a green baby emerald. Yeah. Um, I love those. But um, two other ones that really stand out for me are the orange ones. And the reason I say that is because the litters that I've produced have always had orange babies and red babies. I've never mm-hmm. produced a green one. But an or- And there's interesting things that go along with that. I find that the orange babies um, then transition to yellow and then to green, and they do so much earlier than the red babies from the same litters. 
So it's interesting that we see this color variance or variation in the in the duration of that ontogenic change. But I don't know if you remember a number of years ago, um, Tony Nikolai bred two anaconda phase together, uh, which are the you know the for those that aren't aren't familiar are they lack the white pattern and where the white pattern will be is replaced by kind of charcoal gray or blackish kind of um, um, kind of dorsal patterns, almost like an anaconda, if you think about it like that. He bred two of those together and produced something totally different. He produced these yellow babies. Do you remember those? Yeah. Yeah, yeah just out of this world. And they had striping and so on. You know, I just, that if anybody hasn't seen that, search the web for uh, Tony Nikolai's anaconda phase breeding because they were just exceptional. Um, but we tend to see red and green, primarily red is, is the way to go. And over the space of about a year to a year and a half, they'll go throughout, through that ontogenic change um, to their adult colors. Um, and that's a really cool thing to watch because, you know, you see little sprinkles of scales coming in of, of changing from the red to the to the yellow to the green and so on. It's a, it's a fun thing to watch. So for anybody that has the opportunity to, to buy baby emeralds you know that they'll really enjoy that whole transition yeah they're beautiful when they're going through that change it's like every shed they're just a little different and you're almost wishing they would just stay like that and then they change again right and And then they change completely (laughs) and they can do it fast like it's you know the the great thing about having our our iphones or whatever we use is that we've got a camera in our pocket so it's so easy to take a picture almost every day and I've been tempted to do that for this recent litter that I had. Um, if I hold any back, just to take a picture of the same animal each day, you know, because then at the end of the year or whatever, you can put these 365, whatever, yeah. uh, pictures together to see to see that whole transition period, you know, and yeah. how it changes color. Um, it would be cool to do it with an orange one and a, and a red one side by side. So I'll have to see what I can do. Yeah. But even the green ones go through some level of change as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's not as if they're born green and they stay green. They they do transition in the type of green that they show and the, the amount of black and so on as well. Yeah, I've had uh, quite a few green actually in my litters over the years. Um, I've been fortunate to get those. And, and it is a surprise when you look in there because you right away, you, it's like a miniature adult. You know, you used to see yeah. the, the, like you say, the orange or the red. But when you see a green one, it, it's definitely pretty spectacular in its own right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's for, for me, that's interesting in itself because I would like to um, – I would like to get some that were born green and then pair those together to see if they produce more green babies than, than red. Yeah. And then do the same thing with those that are orange and do the same thing with those that are red to see if there's any kind of color, uh, level of inheritance of color, of juvenile color or neonate color. Uh, it's something that maybe in time I'll, when I've got a little bit more space, it's something I plan to do. You know, if I, if I certainly produce any green babies, I'm, I'll be holding some back for that yeah. distinct purpose, you know? Yeah, well, even even like you said, because I bred anaconda to anaconda, and and those babies, and you have one, uh, tend mm-hmm. to be a little bit more on the yellow side too. So, oh yeah, the the one that you sent me, the yellow in that animal is out of this world. Yeah, you know, it's like a highlighter, it yellow color. It's just it, it stands out so completely different than the other um, neonate emeralds that are roughly the same age. Right, just looks so so different, which is just remarkable. So I'm excited to see how that develops over time because i remember you know we talked about this maybe a couple of years ago about the idea of that you know that yellow is it a heritable trait right uh, and i and i think there's probably something to that because if you, if you look even at the northern shield both right forget about the batisi which have got that really bright yellow just look at the northern shield caninus you will see some that have got real yellow ventral surfaces um you'll see some of the yellow under the chin can be really vibrant 
and sometimes creeping up the sides, you can see a lot of yellow. Uh-huh. Um, in others, you might you might see blue instead. So I've got ones that are got this really blue scales all the way along. You know, it goes from green to blue into like the into the kind of cream creamy white color of the ventures. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of variation. I think selective breeding is going to really start to bring out lines that 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 show those right that, that there was a heritability to them. Right. And if you thinking about that as well, I don't know if you've seen it. A number of years ago, there was a book um, by Kivett and Wiseman. And it had a picture of a yellow and green caninus um, that was in the wild that was um, just like a green racing stripe down its back. And it was yellow along the sides. The lateral sides were pure yellow. Yeah, I've seen that. And it's pretty neat. Yeah. And in fact, if you if you go on to iNaturalist, there's another one that they found in the wild just like that as well. It's pictured. So, you know, that's a – whether it's a – well, it's, a, it's clearly a heritable trait. Yeah. But it shows that that yellow was there. You know, and, and that's something that can be selectively bred for over time. You know, of course, unlike many organisms that you can selectively breed, um, animals just take a little bit longer. You know, yeah. so your breeding projects to, to to highlight yellow might be a twenty five year process <laughs> instead <laughs> of a yeah. Pass it on to your kid, yeah. Right, right. You, yeah, you better instill that love of emeralds into kids early on. Rob, Rob um, you might be able to comment. Didn't Michael Barrera uh, in Florida have one of those? Uh, he had a pixelated yellow. one. Yeah, yeah he called so. it. He called it pixel. A uh, pixel. Yeah, um, I don't know whatever happened to that animal. I think it died. Uh, uh, I think he still has the siblings because he had asked me at one point, "Was I interested in them?" I did some genetic work for for Michael on on some turtle parentage stuff, and we got talking and uh, and he mentioned, "Was I interested in those?" And then he named the price, and all of a sudden I wasn't interested. <laughs> <in them>. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, I think. The, the actual pixel died and I don't know whether it was regurgitation but um, it did die which was a pity because it was a really cool looking animal yeah, it was yeah it was sharp um, I'll have to look back on my notes to see what was because he had I don't know if he had the parent to that or just the, that and the siblings but they also showed some level of pixeling I think but just not as much as as that one there which was yeah. really cool yeah. and then there's the there's also the granite ones you, have you seen the granite ones in, in Europe is that the ones that have the grey in them like that grayish, yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like gray, white, and black scales. That's yeah. just absurd as well. And then, of course, you see the odd black one that appears as well. Right. Um, and um, I know that Forrest Fanning had a had a black caninus that um, that he got. Uh, unfortunately, it died. Uh, but uh, it was it was a, a, a guy just had it and kept it as a pet and sold it on Craigslist. Crazy. Uh, Chad Gray, uh, Chad Gray had one, uh, pop up in a litter and he sold the animal and it developed the black over time after he sold it. Um, but it got extremely, um, like very dark black. Wow. Um, yeah. It's interesting. You know, it's, you know, the heritability of those traits, we, again, we just don't know because, um, one, so people get um, a little bit kind of impatient with their emeralds and they buy wild caught and how is it with their captive bread and so on that leads to disaster very often yeah they don't quarantine long enough and and they give up easily if they don't find it you know just as easy as a corn snake to breed or a ball python to breed and they might right. take a little bit more work so those kind of traits you know that they're going to take a little bit longer to get established but they are they are very cool you know with with the northern shield we've got that anaconda phase we've got a true pattern list which is also really interesting have you got any of the true pattern lists yeah, like I, have a, pattern? yeah. I have one animal yeah it's just all green it's just all yeah green. you know one of my first 
um, interactions with uh, Caninus was a, a very good friend of mine, Jonathan Harvey. He was buying emeralds in um, in in the UK from the I mentioned the guy Clive Osborne, who was a a, a locality boa guy and, a, and an importer. Um, he also brought in uh, Corallus, and um, my buddy Jonathan bought a number of true patternless wild caught Caninus, and those things were spectacular. Just not not a, not a variant in the scale. It was just green. From mm-hmm. from head to tail, yeah. And uh, sadly, I, they all got lost over time to regurgitation, I believe. But um, that was a that's a a a variant that I would really like to get. Um, I'm just not doing it at the moment because I need to have a separate place to quarantine that kind of thing for a right. long period of time. Right. Uh, but uh, but I'd love to know the heritability of those traits. You know, if you pair patternless to patternless, do you get patternless, or do you see? You know, you've done anaconda to anaconda, and you've had patterned pop up, right? So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, trying to tease apart the heritability of these is, um, is certainly something that's going to still going to take time. Yeah. You know, I've got I've got two point two anaconda phase, and I'm hoping to pair those um, at least a, a male and two females uh, at the end of next year, just whenever I'm resettled in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, I plan to pair those because you know the, the, they were wild caughts that I just took through the whole establishment process really carefully, and those things are just bomb proof. You know, I posted a picture on my Instagram a couple of days ago, maybe yesterday, and, and on Facebook of the female, one of the females, she eats large rats, right? You know, and uh, has no problem with that. One large rat every month, and she is just just bomb proof, you know. Well, the other let, ones eat medium, medium rats. Let's get let's get into that while you're talking about that. Let's get into how you you like to establish a wild caught animal. Yeah, so wild caught's very simple for me. The biggest killer of of reptiles in general that are wild caught is dehydration. These things are captured, and you might think, well, they're captured in a rainforest. You know, they're housed in a in an exporter there in a rainforest. It doesn't take long for an animal to dehydrate, and whenever it dehydrates, it screws up the kidneys. And the kidneys, unfortunately, are really hard to recover. So what will happen with many of these emeralds is they come in so dehydrated because they've gone from a point of capture to an exporter, an exporter to um, an importer in whatever country, an importer to a dealer, right? And then that dealer to a customer. And that period of time can be many weeks or even months uh, where they've had very little access to water, a species that's drinking water every single day in the rainforest. Um, so the kidneys packing in is just a major issue for a lot of those. And, and you see a lot of it whenever you whenever you look at a, a wild-caught emerald, you look at the top of its head. You look at those two big kind of bulbs behind the head. And if they're sunken inwards, then it's a sign of that these animals are likely dehydrated. So what I do, I don't like to get wild-caught animals, but sometimes for certain things I need to. So, for example, for the anaconda phase, we just don't see a lot of captive bred anaconda phase popping up well we don't see a lot of captive bread period right at the moment but we don't see a lot of cap anaconda phase if i could find captive anaconda phase readily i would have bought those over over the wild caught but i couldn't so i i got um the wild caught and all adults you know decent size i like to get smaller but these were all big adults um first thing that i do you know many people will bring them in they'll try to offer them food they'll try to um you know, treat them for internal parasites and so on. I don't do any of that. These come in, I put them into Rubbermaid containers with a couple of branches um, at different levels, a couple of just um, dowel rod branches, some fake 
um, kind of silk plants to give them some kind of level of cover or at least, you know, make it less sterile. And I use arboreal water bowls. So I put these right up at the edge of the, of the perches where the animals can just reach over and drink from because that's in the wild. They're drinking from their own scales whenever it rains or they're drinking from pools of water that form in the crooks of trees and so on. So I, I give them access to arboreal water bowls. I use just um, uh, paper towel bedding just, just to keep an eye on them. Um, but I change that water daily. Fresh water, you might have seen this yourself. And we see it with lots of other animals, but fresh water, it seems to be this trigger for an animal just to drink. You know, if I change, put fresh water bowls in with all of my boas, I guarantee that I can come back in 10 minutes and they're all drinking as much as they can, even though they've got access to water um, every day. Um, But for those emeralds, I think arboreal water bowls with fresh water um, every single day is very important. Fresh water is key. Um, And it's only, you know, I'll keep an eye on them. And generally, once they go through that, they'll, they'll generally shed within a month of coming in i don't offer them food at this point i'm I'm just all my only concern is they're into these tubs the only disturbance they get is to have the water bowl either topped up or replaced daily and then the lids closed and they're, they're away you know they're in the corner of one of my rooms in my lab so there's no they're not in any stressful area and after they shed and after i can see that they're you know a good a good idea whenever an indicator whenever you have an emerald that's hydrated you spray water onto it and it forms really nice tight beads and if it's dehydrated the skin looks a little crinkly and that water kind of runs off it very easily it doesn't it doesn't stick there you know it doesn't stay with that kind of beaded look and i think on my instagram page i might have um pictures of of these anaconda phase after the first maybe couple of months of of um, establishment with me and they've always got they've always got that beautiful beaded look whenever whenever i've sprayed them and so after that, it can be a month, it could be longer, I'll finally start to offer food. And I think with this group, I, I was offering food maybe after about six weeks, and uh, none of them took. Um, this is defrost, um, superheated rodents, they just weren't interested. So I just sit back and wait, and, and I wait until they're sitting with their heads pointed down, and that kind of, you know, they're, they're clearly hunting. So if they're moving around a cage, that's fine, but I want to see them at night or first thing in the morning, coiled on that branch with that head hanging down in that kind of um, kind of S shape where the, if a prey walks past it they're going to nail it um, and once I see that that's whenever I start offering food when they're in that position so it'll be late at night or it'll be first thing in the morning and the nice thing about where I am at the moment is that we live a mile and a quarter from my lab so I can nip over late at night and my wife's not going to kill me because I'm still <laughs> trying to get emeralds to feed um, I'm not having to travel any real distance or first thing in the morning and what I found with these group was um, several of them took after they were sitting in that position. This would have been maybe after three months. Then they uh, they, they readily took small to medium rats. And my the way I look at it is, if these animals are going to regurge, they're going to regurge from day one. And the meal size isn't going to be your trigger. There's another underlying factor that we can talk about later on about that. So I offer them decent-sized meals. So if a female should normally be eating a medium rat, that's what they get as their first meal. I don't start them off on a small thing. Um, And I just monitor them. Um, Another female that I had, a really big one, um, she didn't want rats. She would take chicks, however. And I would feed her three or four chicks um, in a sitting. And then after several feedings like that, I started scenting the rat. and, uh, And then she switched over to just rats, unscented rats. And she eats large rats, not every month. 
So I, um, you know, the, and I, and I keep my animals in a quarantine for at least a year in that setup. So they're in the minimalistic Rubbermaid containers. There's a heat mat on the bottom. I say there's three perch levels. And on the middle one, I put the probe at 84 degrees. So that means if they want to get heat, they can move to a lower uh, um, perch because it's closer to the heat mat in the bottom. Uh-huh. Or if they want to get away from that and get cooler, they can go higher up. So it's kind of the reverse of what they might find in nature. But um, the animals seem to um, understand what to do there. And I, and I will see them thermoregulate. You know, once they've eaten, they'll move closer to the heat. You know, they'll move further away and so on. Um, thermal regulation, I think, is key. It's worked out very well for me in terms of reproduction and um, and, and general health of my animals. Um, and after about a year, maybe longer, 14, 15 months, then I'll move them into their into their lifelong enclosures. And and what I tend to use for my emeralds, for my females, I like to put them in four feet long, two feet high, two feet deep. Uh, you know, people talk about height being more important. I don't see that. Um, I think two feet is a good size for an emerald. Um, but mine are constantly moving. Yeah. You know, you think about these animals just sitting on a branch. I can, I, I'm going to have to set up cameras on my on my emerald enclosures to show how much these these animals move and, and thermoregulate. So I use radiant heat panels. I use UVB forest level kind of five percent UVB bulbs. I have live plants and I use natural branches. So I find them that where I can, you know, they can have multiple different heights. I don't use the standard kind of, you know, PVC or whatever, dowel or whatever yeah. from, I, I just don't think it looks as natural. I like having some level of natural look. Um, cypress mulch on the bottom and because uh, they're rarely touching the bottom anyway, but I just cypress mulch from Home Depot or Lowe's and, um, and I put the, the, branches in such a way that they can get really close to the heat the heat panel or further away from it so that gives them that range and that four foot enclosure they can get up to 99 or 90 something degrees 92 degrees i think is the hottest they have seen them 93 degrees or away down into the 70s um, and they will f- continually thermoregulate you know i've got one animal that will sit under the heat more than the others but the others will just constantly move around and they're constantly every day i walk in they're sitting on a different perch um, at different levels and I'll temp gun them and they're 84 one day and they're 78 the next and so on and they're just they're, these animals are just thriving mm. um, and I never worm them I never treat them for internal parasites only if they show any issues where they're losing weight will I even think about it or if I see like um, uh, tapeworms in their feces but it's the same with my my imported um from wild Trinidad tree boas that we brought in, I don't know, now, three years ago, four years ago. They've never been intern- treated for internal parasites. The emeralds are the same. I just don't, they don't, they don't. I think, you know, being an arboreal animal, they shed a lot of these internal parasites when they defecate. And because they're not coming into contact with it again, they're not reinfecting themselves, such as, you know, um, ground dwelling animals would. Um, so I've never had an issue with, with having to treat them. Uh, for that there and, and they they gain weight so they're they're clearly um, thriving um and and with those i i have them as i say when they're in their their final cages again that kind of middle perch is set at 84 and that gives the full range for them to have hotter or cooler and i what i do then differently is that i set that on a time schedule where they'll have um that temperature from um eight in the morning until eight at night and then i'll switch over to a uh 
to a cooler cycle, which will be four degrees lower. Uh, so to give it some level of cycling, uh, yeah. which might be a bit more natural. With your purchase, and I did that with all of them, and then it's just with your purchase. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. With your purchase, the, I, I like to give mine like a, a little X um, somewhere in the cage, also because the females I notice when they're either ovulating or gravid, or if you fed a large meal, they seem to like to lay on that um, more than mm-hmm. the vertical coil. Have you noticed that also? I've seen it with feeding. Uh, I've seen it with ovulation as well, where they'll actually, um, they'll, you know, their their head and their neck will be coiled around one branch, and then their tail is around another one, and their mid body is kind of propped against something else. So yeah, they are kind of, rolls kind of to using the side it a little bit. Yeah, and they'll use it for maybe for comfort or something. I've mm-hmm. seen it um, females using the arboreal water bowls for the same kind of thing as well. Yeah. Um, and then you know, once after a couple of days of digestion, then they'll they'll go back into their their regular right. their regular coiling. Right. And the other thing that's that's important to note there is that the perch size is really important um, because people think you know they can just throw in any kind of perch size and the animals will do well, and that's not the case. My adult emeralds, I'm more likely to find them on really thin perches than they are on on larger perches. Yeah. I mean, I mean a six or five and a half foot emerald that's eating a, a large rat. We'll, we'll be sitting on a perch that's three-quarter inch at most. Yeah. I rarely see them going more than that there. Like, they sit on the edges and uh, right at the extreme ends of these perches and just and just hang there. Yeah. And, and therefore, with, with babies, they're, they're even finer. You know, I, I think I've read something uh, in the past, and it might have been with emeralds or it might have been about um, green tree pythons, about if the perch is too big, it can cause damage to the, the uh, to the tail yeah. and their back. Yeah, so you can get dislocations. Yeah. 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 So um, with that, you know, I, I, I missed my animal. Well, they're on, when they're in those cages, they're in automatic misters. They're on those kind of mist king um, misters. Uh, and that comes on, I think, three times a week for uh, maybe like a minute. And it, and it primarily wets the substrate. Um I'll go along and I'll, I'll, I'll hand miss them every now and again. You know, people say you shouldn't miss the animal um, because it will cause evaporative cooling and cool the animal down. I don't think it's going to be that dramatic. And the water that I'm using is not cold tap water. It's been sitting in the room, um, you know, and sitting at, at a decent temperature. So um, I'll miss them as well and they'll drink from their coils. Yeah, Dennis McNamara, he's a <clears throat> curator of reptiles at the Virginia Zoo. And, um, I saw an interview with him and then I talked to him about it. He, his animals, almost all of his reptiles, but at the zoo, they, they missed and they missed those animals twice a day and they'll mm-hmm. miss those animals till they stop drinking. If the animal yeah. drinks for 20 minutes, they miss for 20 minutes. If the animal drinks <clears> for 30 <throat> seconds, they just miss for 30 seconds. And yeah. he does fantastic yeah. with the emeralds. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, um, up until, I put together these whole new enclosure sets in my office. Um, I was also using an, an ultrasonic humidifier, the system that I, you know, that piped into these enclosures. And whenever that turned on, you know, cause I use it to simulate dew formation in the morning. Uh-huh. So it would come on for like an hour um, between, I think it was 5am and 6am. And I'm going to set it up again. I just haven't had the, t- the chance to, as soon as that came on, those animals within five minutes were really active and they were moving around um, you know, so I've never had an issue with, with defecation with emeralds. That's one thing that we can talk about. You know, some people seem to, you know, the animals seem to get backed up a little bit and they have to use rain chambers and this and that. I've never had to. Me neither. Um, I think just because I give the animals a lot of space in these enclosures, 
and they're misted in such a way that 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 movement in combination with the misting and the ultrasonic humidifying kind of stimulates just that movement in there and therefore that that um defecation also animals that are not defecating um readily um often are showing some levels of dehydration and that can be a problem as well so um, i've been lucky in that i haven't had to, to deal with that you know i i I know that some people take their animals out and put them in rain chambers every two weeks and so on. I I, I just don't do that. I don't. I don't. Yeah. No, neither do I. I I think yeah. um, I think a lot of animals, a lot of snakes anyway, in captivity, you know, they 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 don't um, necessarily like. You don't see them like a dog get up and go over and get a drink. Like they run into their water bowl. So I always try to put my water bowl <clears> in an area where the the path of the snake is going to find it the easiest. Because every time they run into that water bowl, they, they drink. You know, if you yeah. see them cruising, um, yeah. as soon as they run into that water. So I always try to place water bowls where the animal's going to come in contact with it the most, you know. Yeah, I, I've liked for, for neonates, I've, I've really liked those um, specialty designs. Is that the David yeah. Brahms company? Right. Um, he does he does ones for like the Rubbermaid shoe boxes, and they've got the circle in it where you yeah. can pop the deli cup. Right. Man, I... The, you know, because those little emeralds, they're constantly cruising at night. And I just watch them, and they, they, as you say, they bump into it, and they, the first thing they do is they drink. Yeah. And it might only be for a couple of seconds, but they, they bump into it and they drink. Right. Um, which kind of shows the importance of keeping fresh water. Yeah. Um, in, the, in a rainforest, when it's raining so much, it's constantly fresh and keeping that water fresh and those little pools and the tree limbs and the crooks and so on. So right. fresh water is essential for those. Um, you know, as I say, with feeding, um, I've always been of the, I'll feed large prey less often. So, you know, what I'll do for my neonates, um, my neo, and, I, and it's funny because I, I found this out a number of years ago when I bred animals. Um, they don't really recognize pink mice, I find. Um, I think they're just too small and they, the heat signature is lost too quickly. Um, hopper mice, however, were the, were the key. Hopper mice or pink rats that are defrosted and just warmed up in, in very hot water or else um, what I do is I just put them into a, into a Ziploc bag, throw them onto a heat mat. And then once that bag is starting to sweat, then those things are ready to go. And, um, and I just wiggle it in front of the animals and most of them will take that as their first meal at, at hopper mice. Cause I think it's a larger and it, it looks too big for the baby snakes, but these things uh, just destroy those. And I was chatting to a really good friend of mine uh, recently, a guy called Rich Eiley. Uh, and Rich Ali was the first guy to, to introduce the salmon boa trait in, in boa imperator a number of years ago. But he bred emeralds. I forget the number that he told me he got. I think he got like a 1.4 group of wild-caught animals, big animals. And a year or two later, they all bred. And he produced 64, I think he said 64 baby emeralds. Oh. In his first time breeding emeralds from, from four litters, I think it was 64, or five litters of 64 babies. And I just, it just blew my mind, you know, yeah. and... And he and he turned around. And he said, well, "Warren, the the key is this hopper mice." And I said, "It's exactly the key." Yeah. You know, hopper mice. Just you know, people I see struggling to get their emeralds to eat, and they're offering them live pinkies and this and that. Man, hopper mice just mine just take off on those like like they're candy. And then with those, I offer them about every week to ten days as neonates. And then as they get older, I'll space them apart, and I move the prey size up pretty pretty large. You know, or pretty rapidly so that they're on by the by the age of a year to a year and a half they're on you know um medium to large mice and then 
as soon as I can, I'll move them into small rats. So I think when they're normally at the kind of three feet stage, probably two and a half, three feet, probably three feet, they're probably eating small rats. So, you know, if you're looking at the snake and the small rat will look bigger than the, than the girth of the snake, but that's what I feed. But at that point, it maybe it's every three weeks. And then as an adult female, um, a medium to a large rat every, every four weeks is, um, is my key. And then, but then again, I stopped feeding my snakes in November and don't start feeding them again. Um, on a regular routine until kind of March again. So they, they're eating large meals for a short period of time. Yeah. They're definitely a, a food cycling species without a doubt. Um, more so yeah, than me, anything else I've worked with, I think. Yeah. You know, cause in their range, the, the monthly temperatures don't change dramatically for a temperature cycling. So just like boa constrictor, in my opinion there, and boa, sorry, boa imperata and boa sigma, they're a real food cycling as a real trigger for breeding. Um, so I, I do that. The males, I, I'll give you know a, a small, the medium, whatever rat. My my males, while they're not a sexy dimorphic species, I kind of keep my males smaller. Uh-huh. I just find them to be more ready, more active breeders when they're you know thinner and um, uh, kind of less sluggish. So yeah. I, like some of my some of my adults, some of my adult males that I'm using are uh, like 13 years old, 14 years old. I've got some really nice ones that. Um, Regal Walder produced, and I've still I've got them, and they're they're still produced. The males are still producing babies, and uh, at 13, 14 years of age, and they're still yeah. showing those. And those I feed a, a small rat to once every three to four weeks, and they and they just do really well. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know they 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 take a while to get up to size, so it's not a species that you're going to turn around and start breeding at three years of age. No. Males might, uh, but you know I, I think females are definitely a five year five year maybe even six year yeah. before their first reproduction you know yeah. uh, i find with corallus ruschenbergeri my females were actually showing their real interest in breeding at eight to nine years of age mm-hmm. um, so i think they just take longer i think we underestimate the age of some of these animals you know you see some of those big animals that come in the five and a half footers um you know the big head on them i'd some of those i'd probably say are 25 30 years old yeah you know and of course that's problematic for breeding because people think, oh, I'll get that big female and, you know, it's going to produce babies for me, but they could be more difficult to actually establish into the kind of breeding cycle if they right. go wild caught. Yeah, for sure. You know, start, start small. Start small and work from there is, 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 is kind of my uh, my motto if you can do that, if you need to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so do, you want, do you want to talk about your breeding kind of uh, plan and then I'll, I can take you through mine as well? Yeah, I kind of see where we differ, where we're similar. I kind of do the same, like we were talking about, as far as the food cycling. Um, I'll feed them up until November, and then I usually go uh, from um, December and January with no food, and then February is when I actually start um, feeding again uh, towards the end of February, and then I start hitting them hard in March and April. Um, usually that's when I'll see my ovulation too. Usually I'll get like three to four meals in the female and that's when I'll see them ovulate. And it's usually like the fourth meal is a good sized meal. And, um, you know, they blow up right away after that. But the males, I find, the males, I find, the males, I find, um, you know, when I pair with a female, if he's not showing interest in, I, I don't even leave them in there. They seem to, for me anyway, 
if if I see interest that night, then things are right, and I just leave them together, and they'll breed, and then usually three or four nights later they'll lock up again, and I try to get three or four breeding good solid locks in on a female, and then I feel pretty comfortable with her for the season. But if I put them together and there's no, no interest in them on, on separate branches and all, I usually take the male out the next morning um, and I'll wait. And it, it could only be a week later and you put them together and right away he's on her again. Um, so I only really keep them together when I actually see him actively pursuing the female. And usually they'll lock up for me. If the female's ready, they'll lock up within half an hour to an hour put them together. Oh, wow. Yeah, with mine, um, you know, I, I put mine together in uh, kind of November time. And in early November, I might not see so much, so much activity. But it seems to just get to a point, like the last week of November, all of a sudden they just switch on and the males will constantly breed the females. Yeah. Um, you know, and at that point, I just leave them together because what I'll watch for is um, – evidence of that female going through that pre-ovulation mm-hmm. um, you know we see it in other boas so whenever they're developing whenever the follicles are maturing um, that's going to cause a mid-body swelling not to the same extent as you would get in, with an ovulation but you're going to see a mid-body swelling and you'll see this female sitting in a slightly different angle and so on and you just pay attention to that and as long as i'm seeing breedings from that there then i'll eventually take the male out and i offer the female a uh, either a number of small meals or else a large meal. Right. And I think we've talked about this in the past or texted about it. You know, that seems to be a trigger for me for, for yeah. Boa Imperator, Boa Sigma, Caninus, Hortolana, Ruschenbergeri. As soon as I see that mid body swell for the pre-ovulation, I hit them with food and that like clockwork, those females just, yeah. just trigger. And, and within, uh, within a couple of weeks, that female ovulates. Feed Feed the follicles. That's exactly it. Yep. The first time I ever bred um, Corallis Hortolana was a female that I'd had. She was huge. She, she like six and a half feet, eating medium rats, and just an enormous beast. And I put her in with a male while I was cleaning the cage. You know, that's one of those true ones where I had two cages, and I put him, her into his or his into hers whenever I was cleaning the cage. And within seconds, they locked up. I noticed she was swelling, but I didn't know what it was. You know, it was 26, 27 years ago. I didn't know what was going on. They locked and then they separated about two hours later. And the next day I gave the female a medium rat. And then two weeks later, she blew up like a balloon yeah. and then produced 24 babies for right. me, you know, 145 yeah. days later. It was just, I've always, as soon as I saw that, I was like, yeah, large meals or once you see pre-ovulation, you got to feed the follicles. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, an, an interesting thing is uh, a friend of mine, John Martin. I don't know. Do you know John? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, John, yeah. John breaches emeralds year-round pretty much. Like when he sees his females in, in, in a condition that he thinks is right and he puts, yeah. he gets litters like like randomly throughout the year. Wow. Yeah, I, I've thought about that recently. You know, I thought with my – his are all captive-bred animals, right, because he's, yeah. he's working with, with basins and he's doing the uh, the crosses as well, yeah. right, the Batisi yeah. caninus crosses. Yeah. You know, I've looked at mine. I think the wild cults are probably in a bit more of a schedule. But I've I've wondered about the the captive bred stuff. You know, ultimately, you know, people keep complaining that I that I hold on to the litters that I produce. But I'm just trying to grow up a large group. You know, ultimately, I'd like to have ten or twelve males and about twenty or twenty five females. 
so that I could cycle between years and so on and even try at different times of the year. Right. And that would be that would be between Anaconda phase and patternless and, and so on. Um, so it's something I've thought that once I've got a, a large, more mature group of captive bred animals, can I put them through cycling at different times of the year? Because it's temperature is not the issue. It's food cycling is the yeah. issue. And therefore, I can actually drive, hopefully, the develop the maturation of follicles just by, by – um, putting an animal on a different food cycle. So if I'm doing most of them on a, you know, they start feeding in February or March and then they stop in November. For other animals, I could start them in, you know, that food cycling. They feed from June through to, you know, March or whatever. I could put them off cycle and change that and potentially get them breeding, right. maturing follicles at different times. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know John had, I didn't know John was was doing. That. I haven't seen much from John. He used to post relatively frequently on facebook but i haven't seen it for a while i haven't seen him post for a while yeah we texted him um, the other day because he's got some health issues you know that he deals with on and off so we texted him the other day yeah. to see how he's doing he's still doing good we, i owe him a visit i need to go out there and uh check out his stuff uh, i owe him a visit i'll go out and check out and see how everything's doing yeah. so wh- where is he is he in pennsylvania no he's close to the border though he's uh okay. yeah he's he's probably literally 10, 15 minutes from the border of Pennsylvania, out 78. Yeah. 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 I'm going to, once I get back to the East Coast, it's going to be much easier to to go and see these people. Yeah. And to check check out their animals. You know, I'm I'm really excited about that. Um, Gestation. um, People have asked me a lot about gestation in emeralds and how long it is because they read these books and it's like ranges from, you know, 120 days to 270 days. No, it doesn't get that long. I, I find for most of my Corallus, it doesn't matter whether it's Caninus or Rishenbergeri or Hortolana, 145 days from ovulation is pretty much what I see as, you know, that's whenever they're going to give birth. Um, they generally go through a, a post-ovulation shed about two to three weeks after ovulation. And just like any boas, that tends to be a slightly prolonged shed. So it lasts a couple of weeks while they're in that shed phase. But once they do that, then mine bask and mine basket. I can hit them with a heat gun, and they're going to be sitting at like pretty much eighty-six point four is what I see my females bask at. Right. And I offer that basking site um, twenty-four hours a day. I when at that point, I don't give those females that night drop. Um, I think if you give a night drop, you're going to extend it. So I was talking to someone recently that that's with annulatus, and they find theirs are more like one hundred and sixty-five days. But they only offer that basking spot during the day for a number of hours. They don't offer it twenty-four hours. So I think if you offer a 24-hour basking spot, they'll use it. They'll get to that like 145 days for um, for uh, gestation. Have you found something similar, or what, what do you find? You no, I'm, I'm the odd bird. <laughs> I, you know, I run ambient on, on the emerald, Stephen, um, and I keep them like 84, 85 degrees um, uh-huh. in the room. And mm-hmm. this female went 134 days um, just mm-hmm. keeping ambient at uh at uh, 84, 85 degrees. Of course, my results don't show well this year, but in years past, I've done very well um, just doing that um, uh-huh. with the emeralds. So, you know, it could be an anomaly this year, but like we were saying, you know, I'm I'm open to experiment a little bit more too because, you know, you always want to improve, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've always just been of the mindset that animals in the wild can thermoregulate. You know, and and putting it really hit home when I started putting emeralds into four foot enclosures where they could get from seventy eight degrees up to ninety, you know, ninety four, ninety five degrees. 
and whenever I was coming in and seeing these these emeralds using that entire temperature range, depending on the time of day, whether they'd eaten or not, or whether they were gravid, it made me realize that thermal regulation really is an important thing, at least in my collection. I see it as being something really important. You know, I think they need to be able to get away from hot temperatures when it when they need it, and to cooler temperatures when, or to hotter temperatures when they require it. Um, so I find that that the uh, mine just basket like eighty six point four. That's eighty six point four tends to be the 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 mid body temperature that I find for all of my bows, regardless of species. If they're going to produce a healthy litter, it's got a temp around eighty six point four with that heat gun. If I see it at like 82 or 83, then it generally suggests something's not going to go well. Yeah. And in the time, the odd times where I've had slugs, um, the females have been sitting at like 82 degrees. Uh. Still coiled and doing the whole beehive, but just sitting at like 82, 83 degrees. Yeah. So that seems to be an indicator, at least from my staff. Yeah, um, so so just uh, the Sanzinia this year, she, she was definitely different than the female last year that did so <clears> well for me where... You know, she got dark and um, she wasn't basking though. Like, because the Sanzinia, I do get basking because I, I keep my Sanzinia background temperature at like sixty-five degrees year-round. Um, oh yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So, and their basking spot um, is it can be eighty-five to eighty-seven, and this female just wasn't basking at all. Um, mm. But the emeralds what i wrestle with with emeralds and that's why i wish i knew more about their natural history is is a species that lives in such thick rainforest the basking i mean you know there's going to be breaks in the canopy i guess where they can get into sunlight and bask you know i i just wonder about a species like that in a thick rainforest and yeah, i'm, I'm going to go ahead I'm going to tell you that the temperature difference in those little areas where you get the sun coming through is dramatic. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I was just talking to students about it on Tuesday night, you know, with our upcoming uh, Costa Rica trip in, in November. I said to them, it's amazing that you can walk through the forest and then find an area where a tree fell and it's like hitting a wall of temperature. It's going from 82 degrees, 81 degrees in the uh, understory where, where you've got cover to 90 degrees 92 degrees Mm. and it's just like a wall um so when you look into the canopy you see those little breaks as well yeah Um, and my feeling is that these animals are probably you know because there's no real we don't have any real records of 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 gestation behavior in gravid emeralds or gravid gravid corallus um, in general in the wild but i'm i'm sure they're probably moving to the parts of the tree then where they can get a little bit more direct heat right um and it's fine to move away from it because it's not at a temperature that's really cold. Uh, but I think that just provides that. I think they can still thermoregulate. I don't think they're just sitting at one spot, one temperature zone for gestation. You know, just like we find with with other animals, they, you know, boas they they move towards those heat sources. You know. Yeah, that's like uh, blood pythons were tailor made <laughs> for ambient conditions, and my experience with those guys, you know, they got me set in my ways with these ambient conditions. I think. But, you know, there's so many little factors, like when a tree is, is the canopy is collecting sun, does the trunk of the tree itself get heat? Warm up? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't think it's going to hold on to it very long. I think they're getting it more from just direct absorption mm-hmm. um, from the rays of the sun. And it, it is amazing, the difference. Like, it's it it blows my mind because i got students that 
want to work on various projects and one of them was talking about tree falls and i said it's gonna really suck sitting in those tree fall areas because it's just <laughs> hot it's just the sun is beating down on you and, you and then, it's, <laughs> then it's humid as shit yeah right um, but it is uh it does provide quite a significant temperature variation and it would be interesting i'm gonna have to see if they're available at la selva biological station in costa rica where we go they they have these or had these three towers that were built to get up into the canopies for studies nice and i think two of them one or two of them came down in storms and uh, remember there was a, like a hurricane came through costa rica a couple of years ago i think it or I think it was a hurricane or a tornado probably a hurricane um and it tore two of them down but I, I don't know if they've rebuilt those because i've always wanted to get up into the canopy just to see what it's like yeah you know to 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 experience that you know what temperature is it and those little breaks where the sun's hitting the the branch where animals might gather you know what are we seeing like i was just looking at pictures of gravid well clearly gravid trinidad trebo was uh, earlier on today in the wild and they were sitting in crooks of trees but direct sunlight you know you could see breaks in the canopy mm-hmm. where the sun was getting into them mm-hmm. so um, and, and the other thing that's interesting is that i don't see my gravid emeralds darken which i see in other other boas yeah that's strange right yeah, right so all of that. my yeah all of my other corallus um will will get dark uh all of my boas will get dark but um but corallus canine i don't notice it I don't. and i'll have to go back and look at some pictures you know of, of the same females during gestation and after it but if it's anything it's going to be very minor it's not yeah. that significant no. kind of real real subtle you know, like, yeah yeah so um you know it's I, I don't find them a hard species to breed um i think if you go through the same the standard cycles of food cycles i i think they um they're really receptive to that there and as long as they're they're old enough you know you don't want to push them um then then you're fine and like litter sizes yeah they, they vary so much you know i've heard reports of one baby i've heard you know some mine seem to average the five or six um and they're not small you know these are females are eating medium rats kind of thing um and i've seen them right up to the 16 or 18 babies i think rich ali was telling me about 16 or 18 babies in the litter which is just enormous yeah my Uh, largest litter was uh my largest litter was 14 wow yeah most of my litters seem to average around nine to ten right that's a really nice number that's kind of what I would be shooting for. I'm hoping that my females will be a bit more, um, you know, as they gain size a little bit. You know, they're not young, but as they as they gain size, they'll a maturity. They'll they'll produce more offspring. It's not, it's not as if they're producing slugs; they're just producing. You know, I can I'll I'll palpate those females and I'll feel the number of follicles, and that's the number of babies I get. Yeah. Um, so they're 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 pretty straightforward. But what the, one of the cool things about breeding them, uh, and I haven't seen it with emeralds. I haven't watched it personally, but I've watched it dozens of times with with um with amazon tree boas is that whenever they give birth and they're hanging from the trees and the you know the the tail kind of opens lifts up a little bit and the babies are just basically coming out fully formed mm-hmm. you know i i haven't seen any coming out in the in, in any kind of like birth sack they just kind of glide right out and they're into the branches or they drop down to the floor and then they walk their way up into the trees so that yeah. um whenever i go into my snake room and there's a, a gravid emerald um, that's due to give birth, and I, I you can, just like Boa Imperator and Boa Sigma, you know, you, you get that look. You know, there's there's going to be something happening. They're stretching out a little bit more, and so on. And then you walk in, and there's just a bunch of little babies all sitting under branches, coiled up, just like yeah. the mother. 
such a right? such a cool look oh man such a great look and uh yeah i just just fascinated by them you know I, they're just such a great little species to work with and it's so much in demand you know as soon as i post a picture of baby emeralds you know or a gravid female i can guarantee that my inbox on instagram or facebook is going to get <laughs> crammed with them yeah. with people wanting these sort of things you know they're they're um they're an interesting animal and it's interesting because you've seen such a variation in price now you know like years ago i saw captive bred emeralds for like 350 bucks right and now you're looking at 1500 yeah you know or above i've had people offer me a lot more money than 1500 for baby emeralds just to be able to get on a list and i don't even yeah. hold people list for these things you know right um just great animals you know so if people can do it you know captive bred is the way to go um, breeding one thing I, I will say about breeding is that just like other corallus they seem to be really into this kind of two-year cycle they don't seem to put on enough weight in my opinion in a single year um uh, to be able to give birth year after year i, I go three years sometimes <laughs> you do yeah 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 so yeah. I, I think minimum two and you know you got to do it by the by the way of the female you know i don't want to see any spine kind of triangular shape or anything right. like that there you know so um, it's worth it's worth the extra weight, you know. So don't be rushed. If you want a species that you can rush to breed, get corn snakes. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. if you if you want something that's going to take a little bit longer and, and be really worthwhile and fulfilling, you know, spend the time. Um, the uh, thing that we should talk about again is wild caught, um, and it's not just an issue with wild caught because it can be transmitted, and that is the thing that kind of that that eliminates so many wild caught animals from collections and from the hobby. And probably puts people off keeping emeralds as a result of that, and that's regurgitation. Yeah. You know, it's been given lots of different names over the years, you know, from chronic regurgitation systems uh, syndrome to emerald vomiting syndrome to just a lot of different 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 names. But it's characterized by that, you know, you feed the animal a meal, and three days later, you know, or at least two days later, the female's sitting really uncomfortable. And they're bloating, and then you know a day later, it's it's a, a regurgitation on the cage yeah. floor in a water bowl. And unfortunately, in ninety nine percent of the times that that happens, this is a, a key to some or an indicator of some very um, significant issue. You know, uh, as I said, I think emeralds can can handle large meals uh, without regurging. Um, in the wild. They don't get the opportunity to turn around and say, "Right, I'll just I'll wait until that rat goes past. I'm going to take one that's smaller. I'm going to wait for a, you know, an adult emerald is not going to take an an adult mouse over a large rat or whatever." Right. Um, so they have they've evolved to be able to take those meals. They're part of the macrostomata snakes, you know, the big mouth snakes, so they can cope with those things. Um, that regurgitation has really there's two kind of horrible um, issues that can drive that. For years, people put it down to temperature and said they were too hot and that the meals were too large. You know, so they recommended keeping emeralds at 78 or 80 degrees. Um, and we've talked about the temperatures that we keep ours at, you know, minor ambient of 84. Yeah. Basking spot, they're using it at 90 degrees, you know, so temperature's not an issue. Uh, if it's chronically too high, then that, that would obviously be a problem. Just as if it's too low, it could also be a problem. But the issues are more likely going to relate to um, the two pretty nasty issues they can get one is cryptosporidium and cryptosporidium has been an issue in in importer exporter um facilities for many years 
it's even wiped out zoo collections i believe was it dallas fort worth their annulated collection was lost due to cryptosporidium i believe or one of the zoos i think it was in dallas i think it was dallas fort worth um you know this is a it's characterized by a mid-body swelling um and that three to four days after feeding the animal regurges um, and over time what happens with that is it's not treatable or it's not very successful being treated and the uh it causes scarring of the intestinal kind of tract and the cells that will be releasing um, hydrogen chloride stop producing it they, they become thick and they, they they can't release those digestive juices so the animal rots and then they then they regurge um, it could also be due to inflammation of the intestinal lining, the stomach lining, that causes that regurgitation. The other one that people have been paying attention to over the last number of years is avian chlamydia. So at the exporters facilities, it's very common that these animals are then housed temporarily in cages that might, might have had birds prior to that, or they're being fed birds that died, um, and they're coming into contact with with feces from birds that have had avian chlamydia. Now, avian chlamydia is not common in the wild, isn't it? But from what I've read, there's only about 1% or 2% of birds have it. But once they get confined in these importer-exporter facilities, then that obviously raises the issue and raises the spread within the import-export group of animals. And you find, just like cryptosporidium, it causes regurgitation within three to four days of feeding a meal. Uh, and people will argue, you know, well, just feed it smaller meals and lower its temperatures. I can tell you that an adult five foot five and a half foot emerald is not going to survive on an adult mouse every two weeks you know they, they'll just waste away and die um and the problem with it is that uh it, it's 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 a systemic issue in that it's gonna it's a chronic issue they're, they're going to continually regurge and with um avian chlamydia um it's been shown to impact the cells that release hydrogen chloride again so therefore they're not producing digestive juices and the animals are rotting and then the animals are dying and there's been a number of studies that have done um, Elliot Jacobson um, has done a lot of work on regurgitation system syndrome in emeralds and he studied a lot of groups there's a very interesting paper that talks about um, chlamydiosis and um, they followed a, a group I think it was about 110 emeralds of which 81 developed regurgitation syndrome within 0 to I think it was 23 months so people think that if it's going to regurge, it's going to regurge immediately. It's not the case. It can take a long time. Um, from the from the studies that I've read and from, from talking to people that have imported and dealt with it, it generally shows itself within a year, but it can be longer before it actually becomes evident. And there's some, inter there's some evidence to suggest that if they treat it immediately after that first regurge, they can bring some of them back online, but not a lot. You know, it just seems to be this... this uh, chronic syndrome that, that then that destroys the snake um, how it spreads well I don't know you know that's a really interesting one because I've seen a room of emeralds um, and somebody bring in a, a wild caught and not quarantine it and that wild caught regurged and within six months every single animal in that in that room over 20 something animals began regurging and they all died um, so whether it can be spread they didn't talk about mites in that collection, whether it could be spread by mites. I don't know whether there's a, a, an airborne aspect. I don't know. Maybe Rob knows. Um, but it seems to spread through collections like wildfire, which is why my wild-caught stuff is in one building, one facility away from my house, and my captive bread is all here. 
and whenever I move, um, if I'm not able to, because my new lab is is in a super high tech biotech kind of building, um, where I, I'm not going to be able to have a room full of an office full of emerald tree boards, um, even though it's away from my lab. We just can't have it due to contamination issues. Um, I'm probably going to have to have them in the same building, but they're going to be in separate rooms on separate air handling systems. You know, even even though they've been in with me for nearly two for over two years now. And they're ultra healthy. I still am completely paranoid about introducing those to captive bred animals. Yeah, you know, so you know, I, I've spent so long developing this group and working with these wild cots to just to bring them online, and they're just spectacular. And the idea of of something happening and regurgitation setting in, yeah, it just scares the life out of me. So yeah. I'm, I'd rather just you know forget about that. What what will, what will happen is that. If and when these these wild caught ones breed, I'll bring the babies into my group. That's fine. You know, you've got captive bred babies, but the wild caught I want to keep from. I want to separate them from the captive bred lineages that I've got. Or what, what's the thought that why emeralds are so susceptible to the, those two ailments compared to other snakes that come through the same facilities and everything else? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I know that annulators are are just as bad. So I. I People might not know what annulated tree boas. There's, they can have a bad history of, of regurgitation syndrome as well. And um, caninus, well, we obviously don't know about crepani, but caninus and annulatus are relatively close together in evolutionary history. They're, they're closer to each other than they are to hortolanus. Um, and uh, they, they show that same, uh, that same trend. Uh, why, why so? I don't know. You know, why do we not see um, Hortolanus? I, I don't even know if they're bound to be able to catch Shavia and Chlamydia. They're in the same places. Uh, but why do they not show that regurgitation? I, I don't know. Maybe, you know, Hortolanus behaves almost more like a like a colubrid in terms of how they eat. You know, they, they seem to eat or readily eat more frequently and digest very fast. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just that digestion time is an issue. Maybe, you know, maybe they're already releasing only a small amount of hydrogen chloride maybe they've got a reduced number of hydrogen chloride producing cells that if they get screwed up then it, it leads to rotting whereas if something that has a faster metabolism like a portolanus maybe produces more or has more cells for producing it and therefore knocking a few out it's not going to make a big deal mm. I don't know yeah you know even even my yeah my annulators I feed on a on a reduced schedule compared to my hortolanus yeah um, so um, and it's I know they are, you know, they might look like a, a, a hard lanus, but to the to the kind of those that haven't had experience with them, but they're very different. You know, yeah. one they're placid, which is amazing, and they're so secretive, um, and uh, yeah, just really, really interesting animals. Yeah, you know, um, got anything to add, Rob? No, I think that's perfect, Warren. You know, I was just gonna say that yeah, it's a typically so it's a bacteria, right, that spread typically through aerosolized dust. So any, you know, it's just yeah. catching on a little part. We just have shed uh, bacteria in the air that are being taken up as to why the differentiation between mm -hmm. emeralds and hortulana. Um, I don't know. I think all the points that you laid out might make sense. Even just the gape and the consistency of offering that gape. Maybe uh, that potentially could be it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, um, it's it's sad because it, it just it it knocks 
the wind out of many people that have got these emeralds and they might be doing well for a couple of months and all of a sudden they just they switch you know um i i got some emerald uh, some emeralds a number of years ago from what turns out to be a very sketchy uh well he calls himself an importer but he's not an importer from florida and those were captive bred yeah you know who it is um, those were said to be captive, captive bred siblings that were a year old and they arrived and they had big heads and scars. You know, you knew exactly that they were not captive bred and within three months they were regurging, you know. So, um, just, it's you know, it's the watch. It really is. It's really sad. You know, yeah, because you're just hoping that maybe you can turn it around. You know, they, they talk about using some, some medications, but it just doesn't seem to work. So, therefore, when you talk to other people that are really experienced, you know, you talk to Tony Nikolai or you talk to, to, to add or you, you know you talk to these people that have worked with lots of emeralds over the years they're just like as soon as you see it euthanize it yeah you know the likelihood of bringing it back is slim and the likelihood of it spreading is more is more more likely right you know and that's why using those very simplistic rubber made containers for me are so important because if i put it into a nice you know pvc enclosure or a vision that sterilizing that thing afterwards if you had an animal that regurs it's just you know there's just it's pointless you know it's set up on fire and just get rid of it you know yeah um so i use that's why i go for the rubber make container as the as that um for any animals for that quarantine setup you know so it's one other thing we should talk about with breeding is an unusual animal that pops up every now and again and they're the, they're the hybrids uh, the amazon tree boa emerald tree boa hybrids this is something that caught my eye years ago. Um, I don't know if you remember the reptiles article that's, I think Stan Shearas, uh, if you remember Stan, had he wrote a great article on, on basin emeralds. And at the end of that article was, uh, was another article by Dave Barker about, um, about hybrids. So they, they had got a, a gravid um, caninus and it gave birth to a bunch of hybrids. I saw the uh, And they talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. really? You saw that? Yeah. Yeah. He brought, him to, uh, he brought him to Orlando, actually. And they were amazing. No way. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I saw those and then um, every so often a litter would pop up where they would have either all hybrids or else some emeralds and some hybrids. Um, I even bought one whenever I lived in Ireland. I bought one that was produced at an importer's facility in Florida. And, and while we were waiting for paperwork to come through for that and a bunch of other things, that animal ended up succumbing and it just died. Um, why? I don't know. But they, they tend to not have a great history of survival, like many hybrids. So you look at some of the pictures. I'm not aware of of, of any of those original ones being alive. And, and um, John produced some. John Martin produced that. two litters. John and his that. were just spectacular. But he produced them in captivity, and they were just spectacular. And talking to John about it, he said that they had trouble shedding. Um, I think they developed respiratory illnesses yeah. easy. Um, and I remember years ago talking to another individual about, about hybrids that they had, and they had to get shunts put in the nostrils because they were developing um, uh, respiratory issues and breathing issues. Wow. Um, so I've got I've got a hybrid here, and you know you can see pictures of it on my Instagram. It was it was a litter that was born to uh, a a pet store in um, in Las Vegas. Uh, they got in some emeralds, and one of them t- turned out to be gravid. And very shortly after getting it, it dropped a bunch of babies. Some of them were normal emeralds, and some of them were hybrids. 
I think they thought they were all hybrids, but there you are. Clearly, the emeralds were emeralds. And uh, I think maybe three hybrids. I think that was it, something like that. Um, and I got one of them. Um, Dayton Croydon got one of them. And I think the person in the store kept one or, or something happened to it. I tried to buy it, but I, it, they never responded. That was born, I got it, and it was like an orangey brown color. And it is now grayish blue um, with um, cream colored uh, ovals on its back. It's spectacular. Eats great, sheds great. But I'm just kind of waiting for that. What day does it? Will it start showing any kind yeah. of downturn? You yeah. know, um, is it fertile or not? Mine's a female, so I'm just you know it's a desk pet for me basically at the moment, um, and I'm just raising it up and seeing what happens. You know, would I try to make them in captivity? Absolutely. You you can guarantee that at some point in time I'm going to be trying to make those again. I myself and my friend Jonathan uh, Harvey did a number of years ago. But the female died while gravid. Um, she got a developed this lower respiratory infection that we didn't diagnose and she had um 11 i think it was 11 um developing follicles in her they would have been hybrids um i will definitely try to do it in captivity just for myself not to sell to anybody to give to anybody but just for myself right um, i just think i just think they're fascinating um and i'd like to see how they develop over time you know they'll probably all end up chilling out in my freezer but you know <laughs> it's uh, I'd still like to see, you know, the one that I've got at the moment is just great. And the one that Dayton's got looks really good as well. His has got a little bit more pattern. But if anybody wants to see it, just look up my Boa Booth Instagram. And I've got pictures of it every month or two, just like baby emeralds going through color changes. And it starts off, it starts off orangey brown and, and now it's, it's gray blue. It's just spectacular. Yeah. Very cool. So they, they, they pop up very infrequently but they they pop up here and there you know all right i think we're kind of running out of time here uh one thing i did want to touch on real quickly was the heat sensing pits of the emerald tree boas which are astonishing and i think yeah. probably more sensitive than any other species that i know of um i've had these i use um the oil filled uh radiant heaters electric heaters uh -huh. in my rooms and I've taken emeralds out on a perch and literally had those heaters a good 15 feet away from the animal. And the animal uh -huh. will involuntarily strike, strike. at that heater, you know, yeah. out of nowhere, just from sensing that heat from so far away. I mean, that that is an amazing adaptation, evolutionary uh, thing for these animals. Um, I think it makes sense to be so sensitive. Yeah, you know what we what we know about those heat sensing pits in Boyd's and it, well in, in pit vipers as well, is they are ultra sensitive. I think they can sense temperature changes in the like the point zero five degree Fahrenheit kind of range, uh -huh. really really minuscule change. But you can imagine why something that's arboreal would have either a heightened sense or more of these heat pits that are that are more likely to to detect change because they're they're not. They're in a three-dimensional space where they're trying to find prey. Right. You know, it's not like a boa constrictor that's on the ground or whatever. Primarily, you know, they're sitting on a branch where they're having to hopefully see movement above them, below them, to the sides of them. Not only just prey, but also predators. Right. Um. And it's and it's being used for that. If they sense that very minuscule change, that allows them to get into that um, feeding mode uh, very rapidly. There's also a lot of you know, work that suggests that things like emeralds and certainly green tree pythons actually come closer to the ground at 
to, to feed. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, you've seen, I think Dan Maleri has posted videos of himself in, uh, in, uh, uh New Guinea, Papua New Guinea and so on. Uh, and they find emerald or, um, um, green tree pythons in hunting poses, you know, just, just feet from the ground or if that, um, but I think they really need to sense that that minuscule change. So that if they are in the trees and they and a rodent comes by, that they get they hit it and they they see it, they sense it, and they hit yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I would say the same thing. I, I noticed um, my animals are extremely sensitive. More, they appear more sensitive than um, my my boa sigma, my boa imperator, and they look great. You know, I, in, I teach a physiology course, a vertebrate physiology course, and uh, one of the things that I show is whenever we talk about sensory systems. There's a picture of a of a Corallus caninus, you know, behind me on the screen, just with those enormous heat pits. Yeah. You know, just, yeah, they're just remarkable. Yeah. It's a cool feature of the animal for sure. Yeah. It really, it, it really enhances that look, you know, of, of the, just the face of the animal, just having those really prominent um, uh, heat sensitive pits. You know, Hortlana has it, uh, Rischenberger, I have them, but not to the same extent. Yeah. Uh, and what, what's interesting in the hybrids is that the hybrids will have a head structure very similar to an Amazon, a bit more like it, but they got the heat pit look of the uh, of the emerald. Yeah, 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 they're really cool. It is very yeah. cool. Very. Hey, cool. I think we've uh, kind of run out of time here, so uh, uh, I guess I'll give the closing here. Uh, so thanks for listening to Boas, Boas, Boas with Warren, Rob, and myself. Uh, please check out the NPR Networks on YouTube channel and the website, moralipythonradio.com. You can follow us on iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast app you may be using. And we all hope you uh, listen next month uh, uh, episode of Boas, 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 as we will be talking about uh, some of the West Indie Boas, uh, near and dear to Rob's heart. So that'll be a good one. Yeah, people are actually going to hear Rob. He is here. <laughs> he just hides in the corner. So in the next episode, he's going to be... Uh, he's going to be the go-to guy. <laughs> That's it. I'm just letting the I'm two really experts run with fun. it. No yeah. worries. You know, but yeah, I'll have something yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, Wonderful. cool. All right, see you all next time, guys. All right, guys. It's great talking. Talk to you Take soon. Care.